everyone, and welcome back. This is Dr. Paul Kilgore. I'm the host of the Quantitative Health Podcast, and I'm really glad you're here today because we have a very interesting program. And this week, and actually this month, we are going to be focused on, I think, one of the most important topics for our health that we could actually talk about, and that is stress. So all of February, we're going to be talking about topics and information related to stress, what it is, how it manifests, how we can deal with it, and some of the new things on the horizon that may be good to know about when we think about trying to manage our stress and reduce stress uh, in our lives and in the lives of other people in our families. So let's get going. Let's dive right into it. And so the topic today for our podcast is what is stress anyway? And why should we actually care about it and spend any time focusing on stress? Let me just mention at the outset that we know and almost everyone in the world has experienced some stress in their lives. And one of the things that we know is that some short-term stress, it could be in terms of minutes or hours in our lives, may not be a bad thing depending on the situation. For example, if we're in the road and a car is coming on and we want to get out of the way, we're going to run fast and that is a going to require some stress response from us to get moving out of the way of that car. So that's one example of a, a good news uh, stress experience. The other thing to know though is that when we have chronic stress and when we experience stress on an ongoing basis, it just keeps going and going and going. And it could be for days, could be for weeks, it could be for years or even decades. Then we start to get into problems. And one of the things that we know is that chronic ongoing stress can actually cause or worsen many, many serious health problems, including mental health problems such as depression, anxiety, personality disorders. And also we know it can cause or exacerbate cardiovascular diseases, including heart disease. That also includes high blood pressure, abnormal heart rhythms, or what we call in the medical profession arrhythmias, heart attacks, and even stroke could be brought on by stress. And there's other conditions we'll talk about through the podcast today that relate to stress as well that I think you should know about. Before I move on, I wanted to talk about how big of a problem that stress is in at least the United States. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, and the National Institute on Occupational Safety and Health, the workplace is actually the number one cause of life stress. And CDC has reported that as many as 110 million people die every year as a direct result of stress. That's seven people every two seconds. And when I saw this figure, I thought it was just unbelievable. But that's what they have estimated. 110 million people who are dying every year as a result of stress and particularly stress in the workplace. So the bottom line to know about that is that stress is very, very common. So then I began to think about, you know, how we started to get talking about stress in the first place. What's the history of stress? And how did we ever come to begin thinking about stress? Well, it turns out that there is a very famous Hungarian-Austrian doctor. And he has a very interesting history and background. Uh, he was born on January 26th in 1907 and grew up in Hungary. His father was a doctor and he grew up in 
Prague and other places. He actually went to school in Prague in 1929 and eventually moved over to the United States and Canada. When he was in the United States and Canada, he worked at Johns Hopkins and McGill University. And one of the things that he focused his career on was understanding stress, describing stress, and trying to figure out what causes stress. He lived until 1982. He died on October 16th, 1982 in Montreal, Quebec in Canada. And he would be frequently traveling and giving talks related to stress. And he was actually nominated for the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine several times. He received a total of 17 nominations for a Nobel Prize. He actually never won the prize, though. And he was nominated for his work related to stress and being one of the very first to describe it. He actually has a a short paper in a very famous medical journal called Nature. And in that paper, he describes some of his observations in an animal model. And I won't go into all the details Uh, But at that time, he actually had this very seminal idea. It was nothing that had been described before, so it was all new to everyone. And what he called it at that time was the General Adaptation Syndrome, or GAS. And that paper was published back in the summer of 1936, really became a classic paper in the history of stress research and our understanding of stress. One of the things that he came up with is his idea of GAS, the General Adaptation Syndrome. And one of the things that he proposed at that time was that stress was a nonspecific strain on the body caused by irregularities in normal body functions. This stress resulted in the release of what he called stress hormones. And because of his work at that time, from that point forward, the research on stress pretty much exploded. And he was the first. Um, He's written several books. And uh, if you go to any book dealer or uh, look up on Amazon, you can see uh, his books listed there. And one of his most uh, famous books, I would say, is The Stress of Life. And so he has several others there that you can see but a very, very interesting history in the beginning of stress that we know about. When you go look at what has followed from that research over the years, there's been, of course, a lot of human research, a lot of animal research. And one of the things that we know now is that stress can be mediated by and affected by our hormone levels. I won't have time to go into all the hormones that were involved in the initial research in stress. But one of the things to know is that the glucocorticoids and mineralocorticoids and other hormones that involved in the stress response were also researched at the time when this doctor, uh, Dr. Selya, Hans Selya, was doing his work. And actually, the people that were synthesizing glucocorticoids actually got a Nobel Prize for the work related to that synthesis and uh, the stress response work. It's interesting because when we think about stress hormone levels and one of the things that influences our stress response, you can easily imagine that virtually every day we have some experience with stress. I know for myself, just being in traffic for any period of time, I think, can feel stressful. So over the years, I've developed a couple techniques of dealing with that. I'll tell you about that in just a second. And when you go back in history and you start to look at the research that's done, we know that stress response is involved with this fight or flight response. And you've heard that before, I'm sure, where the first decision or reaction that people make when they're stressed is to either fight 
or flight and run away. And one of the things that Dr. Selya called that was the alarm reaction. That's stage one in his general adaptation syndrome. He also then went on to describe two other stages. One, uh, second stage is resistance. And that's where if this kind of alarm reaction continues, the body starts to adapt to it or get used to that response. And it's that adaptation that can be a problem. And it's a problem because it causes changes in your in the hormonal levels and also changes because of those changes in hormones, changes in systems in your body, organ systems. The third stage that he talked about was exhaustion. This is the kind of the final stage after a long-term exposure to a stressor. And the body's resistance to stress is gradually reduced. Also, this is the stage when we start to see impact of stress on things like our immunity or our immune system. When that happens, we know we become susceptible to certain diseases. Certainly, infections can be caused by a lack of immunity uh, secondary to stress. And then one of the other things that I think is important to know about is that when we alter our immune system and we lower our resistance to responding to either an infection or other changes in our bodies, we can become susceptible to things like cancer, actually. And there's very interesting work being done on that. And as we go forward in this month, we're going to talk more about the impact of stress on diseases that you may not even thought there was a connection. That includes things like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. All these are interrelated with chronic stress. So one of the messages for today is we need to identify ways to lower our stress level and help us stay healthy and become more resistant to these chronic diseases that we know are so prevalent in our society today. One of the things that's safe to say is that it's, and it's really no secret, is stress is really killing us. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. For some of us, it's killing us fast. It can be in an instant, like a heart attack. For some of us, it may be really slowly. In fact, you may not even know or think that you're under stress. And that may be because you've had chronic stress going on for so long and it's just something that you live with. You've gotten used to it. And I know many people out there feel like this. And I felt like that sometimes too. Depending on your job circumstances, family, and other things going on, you, you just have to adapt, right? And there's no other way. But when we're in that situation, you have chronic stress going on in your body. It has direct impact on your organ systems, certainly on your brain. And when it starts to affect your organ systems, then you start to get into problems with these chronic illnesses. And it can happen so slowly that we don't even notice it. And I think that's the real key to stress is that sometimes it kind of creeps up on us. And then years later, we develop really, really severe diseases as a result of this. Over the years, I think, uh, as we look at the literature and we look at the popular press, it seems like stress is talked about all the time. We see that it's talked about in celebrities experiencing chronic stress and how they adapt or don't adapt. We see how people respond to stress in adopting what you might call maladaptive behaviors. For example, 
alcohol consumption or drug consumption as a result to coping with the stress. And when that happens, of course, you run into other disease problems. But stress alone by itself without any other influences can have a direct effect on your brain. It can also affect your thyroid gland. It can affect blood sugar imbalances. It can actually cause changes in bone density and muscle tissue. It can raise blood pressure, which you often have heard of, I'm sure. Uh, I mentioned already immunity can be affected. And when you affect your immunity and or you lower your immune system functions, it actually can cause problems in healing. Like if you have a wound or an infection, healing from that can be slowed down as a result of lower functioning immune system. Also, we can see increased fat deposits around your abdomen. And that, of course, can be associated later on with heart disease, heart attacks, even stroke. So chronic stress has a very broad impact. One of the things I want to talk about next is that it's important to know that chronic stress can affect men and women. There's, It's really uh, equal in that sense. But it's also shown that men deal with stress differently than women. That's important to know because when we talk about maladaptive responses to stress, we really think about identifying positive, constructive ways to deal with the stress that are good outlets for our energy or our attention rather than things that will harm us. What are those healthful coping mechanisms that we can take on that can deal with our chronic stress and actually help prevent some of these diseases that I just mentioned and or delay them from coming on? And there's several things that we'll talk about in just a second. But one of the first things I wanted to mention is, and it, it, this will sound kind of obvious, but I do think that if you are experiencing chronic stress and you haven't been to your regular doctor in some time, say a year or two, I do think it's worth going to visit your primary care physician or doctor because that way you can begin talking about what stress experiences you have and begin to explore different ways to deal with it. Plus, the primary care doctor can connect you with different people you can talk to for dealing with different aspects of stress. And we'll talk about some of these things that you can bring up during that meeting with your doctor or with the clinic visit. What's interesting about this is that just by focusing your attention on that problem of chronic stress for a while, this could, as you talk with different people, open your eyes to understanding or identifying different things that you can do to reduce or deal with stress and specific stressful situations. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, as you've, I'm sure, heard of, there's many different non-drug or non-pharmacologic ways to deal with stress that many people are using even as we speak. I think many of you are already doing some of these. So I'm just going to mention a couple of them now. Of course, there's yoga and meditation. Writing in a journal has been found to help lower stress. Prayer, guided imagery, creative visualization, or even breathing exercises have been found to actually help lower stress. And I think that's very important. You know, the other day I was thinking as we were preparing for this podcast of the most beautiful or peaceful location that I've ever been in. And I think that if you could consider in your own lives that most beautiful or peaceful place that you've ever been in, or maybe one or two places that you've been in that are like that, then just close your eyes for a minute and imagine that you're in that beautiful, peaceful, natural location. And then as you close your eyes, focus on your breathing and being in that location. 
And as you think of that, take a few deep breaths and then slow down your breathing. And at first, try this for just five minutes, very short time, just five minutes, thinking of this beautiful location, slow breathing, deep breaths, and then repeat it the next day for five minutes. And the day after that, move it up to six minutes. Try doing that for six minutes, just a little bit longer. And the next day, again, six minutes. And then after that, move up to seven minutes and do that for a couple of days and move forward like that in, in a kind of progressive way to see if you can grow that time period that you're actually de-stressing. That's just one technique uh, that I think is very, very useful. So sometimes people refer to this as mindful meditation or th- meditation in general. There's so many different techniques for meditation. I won't have time to go into them today, but I do think meditation has a huge role in helping people reduce stress. The other thing, of course, to know about is that aerobic exercise in your daily routine is a great way to deal with stress. It gets the blood moving. It improves your cardiovascular system for sure. It helps rejuvenate the body. And also it provides oxygen to tissues that may not get as much during the regular part of the day. And aerobic exercise, of course, helps to reduce inflammation. So chronic stress has a very tight relationship with ongoing inflammation. What we call even low-grade inflammation can occur and aerobic exercise can help reduce that as well. So at your local gym or YMCA or senior center, you can hit the machines such as a treadmill for walking or an elliptical machine or a stationary bike in the gym. And if you do that for say 20 minutes, three times a week, you'll be on the road to bringing in aerobic exercise as a tool for you to help reduce stress. That's just one approach. Personally, I think swimming is one of the best exercises because you're moving, you're using almost every muscle group. It's easy on the joints does not require a lot of fancy or expensive equipment. So swimming is great if you can get to a pool. Some people like cycling indoors or outdoors and cycling is great, great release for your mind uh, as you focus on the cycling and not on the stresses of life. And then of course diet is important because we can actually help reduce inflammation and bring stress relief through what we eat. That's very important. We don't normally think about that, but it's very, very important. And eating regular meals is very important because one of the hormones that we'll talk about going forward this month and for the rest of our talks on podcasts here is cortisol. And cortisol is really a key hormone when we talk about the stress response and how it varies when we're stressed or not stressed. It's also that hormone that makes you crave fat and sugar, and it really is that hormone that also helps you store fat. And that means belly fat. And that means uh, risk factors for diabetes and heart disease, especially in men, uh, but also women for sure. Now, when we think about diet, of course, You've heard the Mediterranean diet and many other types of diets, but those diets that have fruits and vegetables, seeds and nuts, legumes, beans, olive oil, all those, and seafoods can be anti-inflammatory, of course, and won't have time to go into that a lot today, but in future podcasts, we'll definitely be talking about that. So those are tools that you can actually think about to help impact your stress levels now. You know, when I'm in the traffic and one of the things I've tried to do is just kind of relax and, you know, shrug my shoulders a few times. And then also I find when I tighten my abdomen and kind of look at my core and kind of focus on my core, it helps release the other parts of my musculature, my upper chest and shoulders relax. So that's just one trick and technique I do. And traffic, not sure it'll work for you, but 
you can try it. Let me know if it works. I did want to get a little bit nerdy, a little bit medical nerdy on you here because there's some really interesting work I wanted to bring up that you may not have heard of. If you have, that's great. You can just fast forward through this. If you haven't, I just wanted to mention to you that when we think about stress, You've heard of corticosteroids before and cortisol, but there is another hormone that I wanted to mention to you that really can be important in stress. This hormone many of you have heard of, especially women, and it's called oxytocin. It turns out that oxytocin is both a hormone and a neurotransmitter. In other words, it works on your brain. And it's one of those hormones that when it's in your brain has been associated with trust, empathy, and decreasing stress and anxiety. It's come up with a couple nicknames over the past several years, I'll tell you in just a second. One of the things that we found is that when people are given oxytocin, it can affect the way they think. One of the things you should know about oxytocin is that it is made in the brain. Actually, it's made in a particular part of the brain called the hypothalamus, and it's secreted into the bloodstream by the posterior pituitary gland. And secretion of oxytocin depends on electrical activity, electrical activity of neurons in the hypothalamus. And then it gets released in the blood when those cells get excited. Now, because oxytocin is a neurotransmitter and a hormone that's produced in the hypothalamus, it gets released systemically ultimately. And we use oxytocin and we know how oxytocin works during labor, pregnancy. It's important because it increases uterus motility, so movement and contractions of the uterus. And this is especially important during childbirth, of course. So we know it has a very important function there. Also, during breastfeeding, oxytocin is secreted and it causes the milk to be released from the breast so the baby can feed. So oxytocin works even after birth for women and for the babies, and it helps in milk production. So it's very, very important. And what's interesting is that over the past several years, oxytocin has become a target for research to see if it could actually be used to improve what they call in the medical jargon, social cognition. To make a simple story of this idea, it really means that we're trying to change the way that people perceive events, perceive other individuals around them. It's one of the reasons why oxytocin has been such an active area of research, in part because it, it kind of got this nickname as the love hormone because levels of oxytocin go up during hugging and orgasm. It also has gotten uh, attention because it's thought to be beneficial or potentially a treatment for patients with depression, anxiety, intestinal problems, or even psychosis and schizophrenia. So those are some of the areas of research right now that oxytocin is part of. So it's very, very important. And one of the interesting things about oxytocin is an experiment that was done looking at individuals and their ability to take risks. And there's a system in the brain where oxytocin is working, and it really relates to how we react to different cues or different stimuli in our environment. One of the things that we know is that the oxytocin hormone reacts with the oxytocin receptor and influences risk-taking behavior such as gambling. So they did a very interesting study where they looked at two different groups and the bottom line was that oxytocin when it was given intranasally influenced risk-taking behaviors or decision-making among people that had a certain type of that oxytocin receptor. What we know from our genetics now is that the oxytocin receptor can vary depending on your genetic profile and so 
our genes can actually dictate how our oxytocin receptor can behave. So that's very interesting work. Now, one of the things that we've seen in these studies is that they have administered oxytocin through the nose, and we call that in the intranasal delivery of oxytocin. One of the things that people have looked at is whether or not it can help our processing of social stimuli. In other words, when we're interacting with other individuals, does that improve our trust of others, our memory of our experiences, even how we perceive anxiety in social situations or social anxiety? And so this has been a really hot topic over the past several years. I think the jury's still kind of out on how oxytocin really works in different people. And it's so much so that there was one study published uh, around 2014 in the psychology literature. At that time, oxytocin was given these nicknames I mentioned to you, love hormone, monogamy hormone, cuddle hormone, the trust me drug, and other names. And when people were thinking about using oxytocin, the question was, would oxytocin be right for everyone or only for certain groups of patients with certain conditions. So one of the things that this one paper in the journal Emotion showed is that when oxytocin was given to healthy young adults, actually they found that too much oxytocin could cause oversensitivity to the motions of others. And so the way that people are thinking and how their brains are working can really dictate how oxytocin behaves in that individual. It's being also looked at as a potential adjunct or therapy in individuals that have autism. So stay tuned for more information on that. I think it's very interesting work going on right now. Certainly we think we need more work in that area uh, because there is some promise that it could help certain individuals, certainly not everyone, but it has some potential for sure. So a few key take-home messages on oxytocin I wanted you to know about. One is it's produced in the brain in the hypothalamus. It's released during sex, childbirth, and breastfeeding or lactation, and it helps in reproductive functions like childbirth. It has physical effects, psychological effects, and can influence social behavior and emotion. Oxytocin right now we prescribe as a drug for the OBGYN, things that happen like childbirth. It can really be helpful in childbirth. Also, the research is showing that it may benefit people with autistic spectrum disorder, ASD, anxiety, and even irritable bowel syndrome. And so there's a lot of science going on and research and stress only kind of touch the tip of the iceberg there. But, you know, when I think about stress, I do think about the toll on our bodies. And I think the bottom line is that it's a huge problem in the United States. 110 million people are dying as a result of stress. We have cancer, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, depression, anxiety that is linked to chronic stress. Suicide, of course, is related to chronic stress. So there's a lot of things that we know stress can impact uh, in our health and the things that we know that we can do. So getting that checkup, getting in to talk with your doctor, step one, starting and thinking about an exercise program once you're checked out is a good thing. Healthy, well-balanced diet, getting support from friends and family, being able to recognize the signs of stress, such as difficulty sleeping, lack of energy is important, and then begin to make a, a to-do list about what you want to do to help address stress in your life. Think about those things that you can get done every day, Think about the things you can't fix. Make sure you schedule time for yourself to relax. Even that meditation I mentioned is a great reason to think about changing your daily routine to some extent. Yoga meditation, the breathing exercises I mentioned are great. Getting outdoors, changes of scenery can be very helpful. And even a new hobby can be beneficial. Of course, we know that stress can 
affect our lives. And I'll just end by saying that we know that there is this direct link between stress and sudden death. Uh, if for no other reason I mention this, it's because February is Heart Awareness Month, Heart Disease Awareness Month. This past Friday, February 7th, was actually Wear Red Day, and that's to raise awareness of heart disease in women. Very, very important. And we know the stress response can alter our heart rhythm, especially if we're angry, we have anxiety. We know that this can alter the rhythm system in our hearts, and that can also lead to arrhythmias or abnormal heart rhythms. And when we get that, that's when we can have sudden death as a result of abnormal heart rhythms. So a lot to talk about with stress, much more to come this month. Stay tuned and make sure also, of course, that you do visit the website. The website is at quantitative-health.com. Also, you can schedule an appointment to talk with me on the website. Uh, Just fill out the form in the calendar. We'll let you know uh, when there's slots available. Uh, Free 15-minute time slot. You can talk with me anytime. You can also reach me at our one 888 Four zero six zero eight 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 number. A lot of eights in that number. So one eight 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 four zero six zero eight eight eight. And just remember, stress plays a very important role in our lives. It's likely that each one of us will have some in our lives, and it's also likely we can't one hundred percent eliminate it. But there's several ways to manage it. Trying these different approaches and seeing what works is a great way to start. And simple steps that you can do: make an appointment with your primary care provider, get that checkup going, and then begin talking about how you can begin to manage stress. Start with these small steps, and then gradually you learn other things you can add on. We'll talk about the rest of this month for sure. And we're gonna also talk about new technologies and tools that you can start to look at to help reduce stress. So a lot to do, and a lot of interesting information to come. For now, I'm Dr. Paul Kilgore for Quantitative Health. Thank you very much for listening, and we're gonna see you next week and continue our discussion here. And as always, feel free to call me or send me a question by email, visit the website, let me know how you like the podcast. Also, if you have any comments about the podcast, feel free to post those. I'd be happy to answer them and use those to help modify and change content uh, going forward in the future. Thanks so much. Take care. <music>